Thank you for joining us at KFAI Radio, 90.3 FM Minneapolis and 106.7 FM St. Paul, Radio Without Boundaries, streaming at kfai.org. I'm really glad you're here. You're listening to Messages from the Drum. I am Beverly Bushyhead, your host and guide for the next hour. I'm an enrolled member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. I'm from a southeastern woodland tribe and live now in the Midwest. Messages from the Drum is an educational and public awareness program. It is a storytelling platform for indigenous community to highlight historic and contemporary narratives. Recent research has found the barrier of invisibility and erasure of Native Americans has been prevalent in all aspects of U.S. society. Looking around the world, this is the case in other countries as well. Messages from the Drum is a place to present positive narrative representative of tribes, empowering and engaging stories directly from those living it. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Messages from the Drum. It occurred to me that all our stories so far have been from women. So in this episode of Messages from the Drum, all our stories are from men. I hope you understand, trying to be fair here. I would like to let you know that if you want to hear about a certain topic or tell a story on Messages from the Drum, your ideas and suggestions are more than welcome. There are several ways to let us know what you like and want to hear more of. The email address is messagesfromthedrum at gmail.com. The KFAI station phone number is 612-341-3144. Or... You could like the Messages from the Drum Facebook page and comment or message from there. You're listening to Fresh Air Radio, KFAI 90.3 FM Minneapolis and 106.7 FM St. Paul, Community Radio Without Boundaries. And we can also be found online, as you know, at kfai.org. Our next guest is Robert Desjarle. Let me introduce you to a little bit about him. Robert Desjarlais is a Red uh, Red Lake Chippewa. He's an enrolled member. He's a husband, father, grandfather, artist, and cancer educator. Robert was diagnosed with colon cancer at age 67 and metastatic liver cancer two years later. I admire the way Robert approaches life and shares what he's learned with the community. Robert is so talented as a writer, journalist, and has been a culture advisor and leader. Robert's a great artist, and he signed his art with the symbol of a wolf's paw to honor the historic and ancient connections that he's example of. Robert Desjardins is an activist and was a co-founder of Protect Our Monomen. While he is most humble, he's highly respected and has much influence among Native peoples in Minnesota and beyond. Before you hear the interview, I want to mention some details for you. There are some background noise. First, Robert has two dogs. During our interview, they got their narrative in as well through barking, breathing, panting, and you'll hear them moving around. Perhaps you don't know, but dogs have a special place in the hearts of many indigenous families. Native Americans taught their dogs to fish and hunt. In the Pacific Northwest, natives used dogs to hunt bear, elk, deer, and mountain sheep, as well as waterfowl. With special training, dogs learned how to drive elk and deer into snares or traps. The Inuit dog helped to hunt seals and polar bears. Can you believe that? 
polar bears. These dogs are very skilled hunters and also courageous and protective of their owners and families. The Chippewa, also called the Ojibwe, also called the Anishinaabe, used dogs for hunting and to pull loads. In most tribes, the women cared for bread and trained the dogs for drags and sled pulling. The toboggan, introduced after contact, soon became the universal form of winter transport from the St. Lawrence to the Mackenzie River. Tribes often have numerous dogs. These dogs are large with bodies of the wolf and heads and ears of the fox. I'm just saying, Robert's dogs are big and beautiful dogs. <laughs> the Dejarle family has a lovely home on the banks of the Rum River in Onamia, Minnesota, near Mille Lacs. On that beautiful river is a sawmill that can perhaps be heard in this recording. That seems poignant to me as Robert's grandfather, his father, Patrick's father, worked as a woodcutter at the Red Lake Lumber Mill. Something important to the context of this conversation that Robert and I engaged in is his mentor and an honored community leader, Herb Sam, passed away the day before we spoke. Robert was feeling the deep loss of his dear friend, as many were in the community and are, and he mentions him in his narrative. We talked the day of the wake, and the lessons and cultural teachings he learned from Sam were top of mind. This is an important relationship, as the cultural teachings were impacted by his father's being sent to an Indian boarding school at Red Lake and Pipestone, Minnesota. Robert mentions this a bit in his conversation as well. So what does it mean for there to be four hills in life? The, that's the teaching that uh, talk about that the four hills in life, uh, childhood, youthhood, adulthood, childhood, and uh, so through life we basically climb over each hill. So it's a, a stage in our life that we uh, make our way through. And so on those hills there's you know various difficulties of climbing the chill. You have to come down off of the hill and then go up to the next hill. Um, so it's a, it's a unique uh, I think the unique way of uh, looking at life in general. Mm -hmm. uh, seeing it uh, in that kind of perspective. Uh, I don't think it's... Well, I, I think it's basically an Anishinaabe belief. Uh, there may be other tribes, a few other tribes that have that concept. Uh, but I found that it's something that, uh, that you find largely among uh, Ojibwe people. Other Anishinaabe people, and I know that uh, Cheyenne and Arapaho also have uh, four hills of life, mm -hmm. but the Cheyenne and Arapaho are actually Anishinaabe people. Uh, their language uh, is related to uh, to the language, Anishinaabe language, and uh, so when we had our migration, you know, a long time ago, we lived on the coast of the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, there are various prophecies given at that time, and uh, 
of the tribe that were living there began to migrate toward the west. And, uh, the, the first groups to migrate were the Blackfoot, Cheyenne, and Arapaho, and uh, they were able to make it to where kind of where they are today. Uh, I knew the Cheyenne and Arapaho came from Minnesota, uh, so I'm just putting that in uh, because they, they are considered to be a part of the Anishinaabe language tree, and uh, and I knew that. Uh, do have that word of life concept uh, among their people too. So maybe something, you know, I think it's something that evolved uh, to the east. Uh, there's a lot of intermingling of various uh, traditions from different tribes. Uh, you know, we have a lot of traditions that seem to have been influenced by the Iroquois mm -hmm. and vice versa. So we all live in that area. Old person with wisdom, you know. Kind of, kind of like elders, and we have two definitions of people who are old. Some people are just old people. Mm. You know, not really happy with life, they don't really share what they, they've learned. But then we have elders who, uh, who share what they know. And, uh, you know, some people call me an elder, which is fine, but people don't. That's also fine, I understand. People have different thoughts about what makes up an elder. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, you know, I have shared things with young people over the years. I have uh, had workshops and presentations. I worked with uh, youth groups. Uh, you know, I've tried to encourage young people uh, not to use the alcoholic for many years until I was about 34 years old. And when I look back, um, I didn't accomplish a lot in the years of drinking. But, uh, I don't want to call it a waste of time because when I look back, I can see uh, there are a lot of things I didn't know about living that other life. But I think young people today are exposed so much. It's overwhelming. We have all this technology, video games, that kind of music that's coming out, you know. I mean, I'm not a real big fan of rap music. Uh, <laughs> take me back to rhythm and blues or something like that, you know, or Led Zeppelin, you know. <laughs> then I can relate, but. Uh, I don't know, it's the cause growth for young people and you know, I read somewhere that young people worldwide are going through a spiritual crisis mm -hmm. and I see that, you know, a lot of them don't think about that part of their life, uh, they don't think about being spiritual uh, and it isn't that difficult to be spiritual, you don't have to walk in water or it's a simple matter of maybe putting on tobacco once in a while, thank the Creator for life, being grateful for when you wake up in the morning, uh, maybe going out and 
picking plants, getting sage, uh, real simple things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think young people should be more involved in those activities. But they're not lots, but there's still a lot of people who do them. Uh, we all deal with historical trauma, we all have our own historical trauma. I had to work through mine. Uh, and I got sober. Uh, I didn't work through my trauma right away. I mean, there's obviously things that affect me from my, from my past. They made me alcoholic, so to speak. But uh, once I learned about historical trauma, and that's when I was working for Anza Young, I went to a lot of different trainings, and I learned about it. And, uh, you know, I was using it for my clients, right? Uh, and then I, I didn't realize I could really use it for myself. So I began thinking about it, and I, you know, I had to go back, uh, understand what my, what, what my father went through, what my grandfather went through, what my grandparents went through, and how that affected me, how all that affected me at that moment. Uh, and so, That piece, which is part of every native life, um, you know, people need to look at that. I mean, one of the things I thought about, I don't know the language. You know, I know a little bit of it. I'm probably you know, maybe kind of an intermediate speaker, if even that. Uh, but I was thinking, you know, my dad was the first speaker. That's the language they spoke in the song. And when he went to Red Lake Oregon School, they took that away. And uh, I've seen that, that's part of the trauma there because it's passed on to me where, you know, uh, I had this uh, genetic connection to the language that was uh, taken away. And, uh, you know, when I look beyond my grandparents' generation, and I have my family genealogy. Um, when I look at the genealogy, going back to my grandparents and beyond, it's all retributed me. You know, and I think about my relatives, my ancestors, how they viewed the world, language they spoke, and all this history. And this isn't something that's exclusive, exclusive to me. It's a part of every. Native American life. Mm. They just look back. They can find their ancestors that had those names. Mm. You know, now, nowadays we have English names, and um, a lot of people don't know what their clan system, clan they belong to. Just learning about your family is important. Mm. You know, and uh, learning about some of the responsibilities that go with that clan. Mm. You know, um, it's one of the reasons I personally consider you an elder. You have taken not just all the things in your life that you have learned and recovered. You're not just in recovery, but you're recovering your culture. And to me, that takes a lot of thought and determination and study. So I spent two years studying my genealogy as well. And, and I see exactly what you mean. You get to a certain point um, and it's just all Indian words. And you learn not just the names and the language, but your culture, because all of those names meant something and were given for a reason. Um, I traced my 
um, culture back before Columbus and on both sides of my family. And it took years for me to do that study, but it was really hugely empowering as a Native woman to, to do that. And I can see that that's worked in your favor as well. And one of the reasons I think you're an elder is because you gave that back. You've been sharing that through your art, through your writing. You give it back to the community. And that's why you're not just someone who's growing old. Like you said, there's people who grow old and, and then there's elders. You're, in my opinion, you're an elder. Um, and so I'm very deeply honored to, to talk with you and to learn more about what it is that led you to be on this fourth hill of life. Um, as a cancer survivor, being on the fourth hill is, is a blessing that not every um, person who's diagnosed with cancer is allowed to enjoy. And um, I'm just really grateful that you're doing some of the cancer um, advocacy that you're doing as well. Um, is there anything you'd like to tell us about that? You know, the, the thing I tell people when they ask me about that is I feel that uh, I've been given a mandate by the humanity to speak about cancer. It's the reason why I was given it. Uh, but in my own history, I mean, my dad died from stomach cancer in 1972. And uh, so in the following years, and uh, I'd probably safely say this is true with my brothers and sisters, I think we all grew up with the fear of cancer. Uh, my dad died of uh, 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 horrendous death from cancer. He went through a lot of suffering. Mm. And, uh, and I think he lived for about eight months or so after he was diagnosed. And, uh, and you know, we had to watch that. Uh, uh, he ended up in Veterans Hospital, of course, now I make her remember the room. Ugly, one painted green. I only went there once, I couldn't go there. After I went there once, my mother was there all the time. And I died from cancer and that. The thing I remember is, you know, seeing him in his casket and he had a very bitter look on his face. He didn't people have his calm, peaceful look. I didn't see that like that. I think he was angry and bitter that he died from cancer. And when he had cancer, they didn't have the kind of cancer they have today. You know, usually, they would just say, you're coming on that field, and they had no treatment for the Chemotherapy was really kind of beginning back then. Uh, radiation was used, but that uh, uh, was a very good way of uh, helping people with cancer and make, make them live, help them live for a few months or whatever. Nowadays we have all this technology, and I don't know if they're going to cure for cancer, but we find a way to help people live longer. I think that the misunderstanding people have about chemo is that uh, it cures cancer, it doesn't, it was never intended to. Well, chemo does, it helps you live longer. And they may put your cancer in uh, what they call complete remission, but it's still there. Mm. And uh, so, you know, those are things I talk about and 
have that history of cancer in my family. Uh, when I was diagnosed, uh, I almost didn't go to the doctor. I was like everybody else. Oh, I should say everybody else. But I was like a lot of people that they felt something was wrong, you know. Mm. You don't want to go to the doctor. And of course, I was thinking about cancer, right? And, uh, and so finally, I did go. I did that for my family, I had to think about them. And uh, even though I wasn't diagnosed right away with cancer, both me and my primary doctor knew what it was. Mm. Uh, I think my, I was anemic, and uh, I remember, I think my red blood count was down, uh, drastically down. So she asked me if I go to a specialist at the U of M. And I knew right away what that was about. Mm -hmm. and, uh, when I went out to my car, I sat there. It was a really beautiful day. I was trying to go out for instance, happened to and, uh, and then I knew I had cancer. I didn't have to be told that. I just knew it inside. And, you know, I was scared, fearful. about the way my dad died, I didn't want to die that way. Uh, my mind was just going in all different directions. And uh, when I got home, I told a man, my wife, that, well, I think I have cancer, you know. Uh, one of the things they did say, I was a high-risk cancer patient, and they uh, gave me CAT scans uh, once a year. And they said that you have to take this CAT scan five years, and if you remain free of cancer, you'll be you know, cancer-free. I mean, they don't use the word cure. They don't ever use that, but they just say, you consider yourself cancer-free after five years. And, and then in the third year, I went, the first two CAT scans were fine, and, and then the third year, I went back, and they found a lesion on my liver, uh, and with cancer, and four rounds of uh, chemo that, uh, uh, that wasn't a good experience. I really had some severe reactions that stood up that are still with me today. One of them was a cold sensitivity reaction. If I walked on this tile floor, my bare feet, and my feet get numb. It almost feels like they're, they're swelling up, but they're not, they're just getting up. So I have this aversion to fall. Uh, some days I'll be sitting here, I'll have to wear a hoodie with the hood up. Uh, but that's what I was going through when I did the chemo, and I had a real bad reaction on the fourth one. And uh, they had the whole staff there, my, my throat had constricted. So they took me off that, and I had to wait a couple months, they did surgery, and they put me back on a different chemo drug. And, uh, and with that one, I lost all my hair, I lost uh, all my facial hair, I had hair, uh, and uh, I had lost some of my hair with the <coughs> first chemo drug I had, but not that much. But I did shave my head, I had some balls, but this time the hair just started coming out. It Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I had other side effects, and it's 12 months of that, so I went through this 
approach the parents, you know. And uh, you know, I hear a lot of people bad talking to you know, you shouldn't do it. I have people telling me to do traditional things instead of chemo. And, um, I don't want to do that. I, I have complete faith in my doctor. I have complete faith in conventional medicine. And I mix it in, you know, I have a pipe and I put tobacco on it and um, stage, um, just trying to keep things simple and keeping that connection. Um, but I would never discourage anybody from getting chemo that that could be um, something you have to go through. And, uh, so the day they say I need to that's great. Well, I like talking about those things to people. There's a lot of people who, you know, when they get cancer, that they don't know what's mm -hmm. ahead of them. You know, they're scared. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I don't blame them, but uh, a lot of times your doctor would just give you kind of like real basic information. Well, if you know what your if you know about your cancer, you read up about it, then you go to your oncologist and you can ask. Usually you just get this real basic information and um, so for a lot of people they don't know what's ahead of them. It's a difficult time to go through but you can survive. Uh, you have to uh, do what they say, you know. Unfortunately go through chemo if you have to, uh, but it's very survivable. Uh, in the day, I mean I like and so they say my cancer is in complete remission, it doesn't mean anything. And it doesn't mean that I'm cured of cancer. Um, when I had my recurrence, I moved into stage four. And that's a, when you mention stage four, you know, all of a sudden people are thinking terminal and you know, line. But uh, that's not so. Uh, in my stage four, it just means that I have recurrence. They did get rid of the cancer the first time around. They hung around in my body. But uh, that's the kind of disease that you don't know when it's going to come back. Folks uh, around in your body at some point take hold of another organ or whatever that's to develop. It probably means they test you a lot more frequently and, and are watching it carefully. But, you know, since then I've been in good health, I get great numbers on my blood work and lab work. And, um, I still don't exercise as much as I should, although dancing is part of the exercise I do get. Um, you know, it's hard to uh, turn your life around when you're used to living another way. Uh, like food, you know, I'm not on a strict diet, but I do mix my diet up. I haven't stopped drinking pop, uh, and I still drink that on occasion, but I'm thirsty. Like late at night, instead of grabbing a can of pop and watching TV, I'll grab a lot of water. Mm -hmm. water so. But really, you know, that's key is part of the, I mean, diet is part of the key, but I think living in a good way. Mm -hmm. When I talked about cancer, 
especially the colon cancer. I mean, we, we're losing too, so many people with colon cancer. And uh, you have to wonder why. Why are we losing people with colon cancer, stomach cancer? Those systems. Yeah. Yeah. That part of our body. And when we look back, uh, you know, one time we had this traditional diet, well, food, well, pain, uh, and then the treaties were made, we were given the treaty made, and uh, eventually started eating the Western diet, and we vegetables that were sprayed with pesticides, and had all this junk food. And it's a little wonder why um, we have such high rates of colon cancer. I think it's strongly linked in the, to our diet. So, mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, I don't have strict diet, I think, so don't, mm -hmm. I don't want to go to the diet, I go to the diet. But yeah, people really need to go to the diet, especially our parents need to go to the diet. If you're feeding their kids, I mean, their kid might. Colon cancer is striking young people today. Mm -hmm. Early at 20, 30 years old. It used to be called the uh, Overland disease, you know, but that's not the case anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's just not uh, native. I mean, colon cancer crosses specialist lines, all cancer does. Mm -hmm. But we do have high rates of it among generation. Thanks for talking about that. Um, I'm sorry you've lost a lot to cancer. I'm really grateful that you've lived and that you're talking about it and helping us know what to expect and how to avoid it. I think that prevention is really huge. I always say that um, indigenous and cultural wisdom is ancient and really is missing a lot from from what we learn in school and from and from what we even tell each other in the mainstream media. Um, if everybody knew this story, do you think it could change anything in the world? Do you think something would change, be changed by this story? Well, you know, I've been taught you learn something every day. I mean, that's what you hear for every day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm 71 going on 72. I think uh, I think for some young people to, to learn about the four hills may uh, help them in their thinking. I don't think it was one uh, central part of their thinking, but just one of many traditional ideas that they can incorporate in some part of the mindset. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I can imagine as you get to a next hill, remembering back to this story and it making sense about where you're going forward and where you've been. Thank you so much, Robert. I appreciate this time we've spent. I really appreciate the time that we spent with Robert Desjardins. A little bit about his family. Robert's father, Patrick, was a well-known artist and three of five of his siblings became artists in their working life. Robert is the oldest son, and he found comfort knowing his father realized his dream to give back to the people through his art. 
And in that honorable tradition, Robert, too, has gifted the community with his art, his advocacy, and his example of the culture through teaching all he's learned as an Ojibwe man. Robert is a two-time cancer survivor. For indigenous people, experience harsh disparities in cancer incidence and mortality. So while death rates for all cancers combined go down for Caucasian men and women, they went up for American Indian and Alaskan Native men and women. In addition, the longevity of Caucasians, um, they live longer than American Indian and Alaskan Native people after being diagnosed with nearly all types of cancer. We'll do an episode in the future specifically focused on this particular topic. And as always, if you'd like to hear about a certain topic or tell a story on Messages from the Drum, your ideas and suggestions are more than welcome. There are several ways to let us know what you like and want to hear more of. The email address is messagesfromthedrum at gmail.com. The KFAI station phone number is 612-341-3144. Or you could like the Messages from the Drum Facebook page and comment or message from there. You're listening to Fresh Air Radio, KFAI 90.3 FM, Minneapolis, and 106.7 FM, St. Paul. Community Radio Without Boundaries. We can be found, as you know, also online at kfai.org. This episode made me think about how, while these stories may not be new for the teller, they may be heard or recognized by the listener for the first time. And it reminded me of the Don Henley song, The End of the Innocence. And I realize that right now, in many ways, what we're going through socially and politically and just in our communities really is the end of the innocence. I'm going to play that song for you now, and you let me know if that's what you think as well. Here's The End of the Innocence on the album The End of the Innocence by Don Henley, released on January 1st, 1989. Take a listen.
you to Dr. Cornell Peewee Wordy. He's Comanche Kiowa and a professor of Indigenous Nation Studies at Portland State University. His research explores Native American mascots in schools and media, recruiting and retention of Native students in higher education, Indigenous teaching practices, Indigenous urban and reservation-based teacher education, tribal colleges and universities, Transformational Indigenous Schools, Indigenous Identity, Deconstruction, Indigenous Community-Based Participatory Research Methods, and Ethnomusicology, which is digitizing tribal music. 
Dr. Peewee Wordy develops courses that emphasize and explore a pedagogy of resistance that can be applied across disciplines. Something called insurgent research, which is decolonizing methodologies, tribal critical race theory, indigenous ways of knowing, red power, culturally responsive teaching indigenous students, power and knowledge. Don't you love those titles? Self-determination sustainability and the politics of indigeneity. He is now on the executive committee for the newly created School of Gender, Race, and Nations at Portland State University. As you can imagine, Professor Pee Wee Wordy has received numerous transformational leadership awards in teaching, research, and service. He sings Southern Plains powwow songs, composes songs, and plays the Native American flute. His music is recorded on Sound of America Records, or SOAR, Music of the World, Shortwave Records, and at the Smithsonian Institute. Here is Dr. Pee Wee Wordy on the topic of Walk a Mile in My Red Face. Marawa, Dibbity Jod, Cornell Pee Wee Wordy. I greet you in my language, Comanche. I acknowledge the indigenous lands, California, the ancestors here in this area at the University of Oregon. I'd like to start out with some humor. I'd like to share with you something, some satire, and just let you know uh, where I'm coming from as an indigenous person on this uh, North American continent. Do you know why the American astronauts are going to Mars? They heard that there was an Indian living on Mars with one acre of land. And they had to have it. And on that one acre was a casino. And he was an Indian mascot. First and foremost, I'd like to state I'm post-Indian. But I don't live in a post-racial world. And because of my consciousness, I don't live in a colorblind society. I don't even live in two worlds. I live in one world, which consists of multiple cultural lenses and yet they're intertribal and, in, and multicultural. And being colorblind in today's society is yet another form of racism. This phenomenon of using Indian mascots as race-based sports mascots and nicknames in K-12 schools in Oregon, universities, and professional sports teams across the country is the subject of my TED Talk today here at the University of Oregon. I want to preface this talk by saying that I affirm diversity themes of this series of TED Talks. Affirming diversity is congruent with learning theory, so campuses that I speak across the country, the issues of Indian mascots is usually at the entry level of consciousness and novice in discourse. Like the University of Oregon, many other fine institutes of higher education in the United States have diversity goals written in their overall strategic plans goals that directly address creating a respectful, warm environment that affirms diversity on an intersection of differences. Ironically, for many ethnic groups in this country, culture is not educational. Like in the case of indigenous peoples, ethnic culture in America is pure entertainment. It's American as apple pie and baseball, corn dogs and the county fair. Plank Indian, however, has been an American phenomenon 
and playing Indian at school is not congruent with affirming diversity, nor shall it be an enactment, be a part of any diversity learning goals in the teaching and learning process. The main problem with using race-based Indian mascots in schools is that it's creating a hostile environment within an educational sponsorship. I'm here to tell you a short story about a national controversy using the image of indigenous people as sports mascots and nicknames in schools as well as provide with you some tangible solutions to really honor Native America. Ultimately, myth-making is what the story of Indian mascots used in school is all about, simply because he created it and therefore has a possessive investment in whiteness to keep their, ma their mascot, their image. Decades in the making, mainstream media and Walt Disney films together helped burn the noble savage archetype image into the American imagination, which includes many indigenous peoples too. By design or default today in 2014, American Indian mascots are the creation of the machinery of whiteness first imposed upon indigenous people in the early 1900s, the football team Carlisle in Pennsylvania by white sports writers from Eastern mainstream newspapers. Generally, over time, the concept of Indian in the American cultural imagination fed the thirst for the empirical nostalgia within mainstream schools and sports culture and media. Consequently, the American football team, Carlisle, had no say in the creation of its original Indian mascot in 1912. The introduction of the Indian mascot at Carlisle was the creation of white sports writers simply because the football team was new in collegiate play and had to follow the cultural patterns of mainstream sports that had already established mascots like the lions, the tigers, the bears, and so forth and so on. One of the first sure signs of red facing Another form of playing Indian could be found in the historic Boston Tea Party of 1773, whereas Tea Party participants disguise themselves as Mohawk Indians. This event is a catalyst moment in American history burned into the American consciousness, all the way down to elementary school teachers to adult politicians. Creating Indian mascots in schools created a historical cultural marker thereby Americans redefining themselves as something other than British colonists. They, they reinvented communities across the country of themselves into Indians, mostly Plains Indians. And for the next 200 years, white Americans molded themselves into similar ethnic narratives of a newer national identity, rejecting an older European ethnic label while at the same time trying to shed away the colonizer's consciousness. Through white identity performances, most Indian mascots yesterday and today preferred Plains Indians as static and stereotype symbols for what they saw as real Indians. Ironically, this homogenized version of the Plains Indian as a sports mascot distorts the diversity of hundreds of tribes in North America. The distorted perception is what I call Disconscious racism, like in the word dysfunctional, D-Y-S, a disconscious perception 
is so far removed from the reality of daily tribal life that the individual doesn't even know that they have a distorted view of ethnic images because they're still, they are still cultural spectators outside of the culture, out of sight, out of mind. Therefore, red-facing, playing Indian is a persistent tradition in American culture stretching as far back as the Boston Tea Party, later instituting an Indian nickname during the Carlisle Indian School days in its era, and it still exists today. Kill the Indian, save the man was the theme. Stereotyping and power is mutually enforcing because ethnic stereotyping itself exerts control, maintaining and justifying the status quo, settler hegemony. And of course, when we try to bring this phenomenon to the American public as a multicultural teaching moment and try to change it, I'm reminded of 500 years of resistance to European colonization and 100 years of pushback on the Indian mascot controversy, mostly by settler hegemony. Resistance to eliminating Indian mascots framed within the form of political correctness discourse is a classic example of white identity performances and the classic example of the politics of distraction. In the post-civil rights, in the post-civil rights era, I've witnessed many ob obvious defensive tactics occurring particularly within the English nomenclature. Surfacing the mainstream media by language architects are words and terms designed to frighten us away frighten marginalized people away from reframing and retelling our cultural stories, terms like politically correct or correctness. In my analysis, these are xenophobic coded terms created by people outside of our own cultural groups who try to detour our groups from the understanding of our cultural struggles and our stories. In the academic arena, the spirit of my work on this topic is to be academically correct or culturally correct or not politically correct, or just be correct. But sometimes when my students hear the xenophobic coded terms used in public spaces like political correctness, it's enough for some of them to be embarrassed and rethink their thinking and to say the social desirable terms. And of course, as educators, we know that this, this strategy trivializes the nature of the discourse. An article that I wrote title 100 defensive tactics details the reaction response of those individuals or groups that want to keep their Indian mascot. The most popular defensive tactic used to keep the Indian mascot is, but we are honoring you, or, or what about the Irish? The classic concept of this white identity performance is what I call the politics of distraction, executed mostly by friends of the Indian. But when Indian people or indigenous people get caught up in this colonial quagmire, many are politically solicited by outsiders, white investors, trying their hardest to get the local tribal supportive endorsement so schools could continue to use their Indian mascots. And of course, I'm showing you some of the archetypes that have been burnt into the American psyche. This phenomenon results in another type of colonization, which I call recolonization, of the American sports culture. The construction of the noble savage occurred over the years mostly by Hollywood celebrities by, like Kevin Costner, who embellished this archetype in the movies like Dances with Wolves, Costner Goes Native. 
following the footsteps in the Noble Savage narrative were films like Avatar, The Noble Savage in Sci-Fi, and last year's Lone Ranger and Tonto. And in the Disney film, Johnny Depp continues an ongoing le legacy of the possessive investment in whiteness because he too goes native in the wild, wild west, which is a schizophrenic process of searching for a, a national identity. In their quest for reinventing a national identity, many of these Hollywood movie stars enact a widespread white male settler fantasy in their quest of a belong in their quest to belong in the Americas. So therefore, they play Indian on the Hollywood silver screen, reinforcing the racial hierarchy of a white male privilege, playing off America's sense of cultural guilt that tried to systematically eliminate the indigenous peoples from North America. Go, whiteies, go! Go, African Americans, go! Asians, go! Hispanics, go! Whatever the ethnic group, we can spin the deal in the same way as this picture suggests. In their quest for reinventing a national identity, many of these, many of these, these settlers look at this kind of phenomenon. The contemporary image of indigenous peoples today hasn't changed much in 100 years since they invented stereotypes created by the scriptwriters and influential newspaper writers at the turn of the 21st century. Those culturally responsive educators committed to challenging these externally imposed stereotypes and invented images face daily challenges and multiple microaggressions when we start to deconstruct a European colonial gaze of indigenous peoples. This Sartesian gaze includes many indigenous people who may not have looked at how our ethnic images were first manufactured within the machinery of whiteness rather than from our own tribal specific perspective. And working to transform the stereotype images of indigenous people is the essence of my work in higher education. And through our individual work to decolonize ourselves, we can connect and we can collaborate and change the way we look at ourselves in the world in which we can change how we are seen by people outside of our cultures and decide for ourselves who we want to be seen by and who we want to be. In this process, we create a worldview where everybody can look at us, not as Indians, but as real human beings indigenous to the North America, what the new healthier consciousness. And why this is an important issue, it's about raising children in a non-racist multicultural society. So some strategies, some tangible strategies, if they were, they could be acknowledge the tribal lands for where schools exist, whose indigenous lands is written within the school's history, just like Professor Jerry did. Acknowledge the indigeneity across the continent. Create college scholarships for Native American students in each school system. Recruit and hire Native teachers within each school system, professional positions. Recruit and hire administrators in school districts. Elect Natives to the local school board and state board of education. 
integrate native content across K-12 school systems, the curriculum, send teachers, administrator, parents, and school board members to native indigenous conferences, symposiums, workshops, Oregon Indian Education Association, the National Association for Multicultural Education, National Indian Education Association, and many more. Language tribal sovereignty into the mission statement and strategy plans within each one of those schools. Build professional and collaboration partnerships with the local native studies programs in higher education or tribally controlled community colleges. And work with the native communities to replace Indian mascots with each one of these schools. Because when you do that, you heal the past. You celebrate when you retire each one of those schools. You work together to heal the past within oneself. And so I know these are only a few, but it's better. It's better than being used as an Indian mascot in schools. In this day and age of affirming diversity. And so one of my strategies is right here, a letter to the editor, already queued up, whether it be PNT, ESP, uh, ESPN, CBS Sports, or ABC Sports, whatever it may be that the national networks are carrying, because what I come to find out, there's, there's terminology, this language of savagism still is between the, the commentator's microphone and the national audience. And so many times the commentators in basketball will say, he's dribbling down the court and he's going to have that tomahawk chop. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, why infuse a race-based term? Why don't you just say something neutral, just say slam dunk? But that's not in their consciousness. And just like some teachers will say to the little children, children get in a circle, let's sit down Indian style. Oh my goodness, you wouldn't say, sit down black man style, Asian style, white man style. Mexican style, but you said sit down Indian style. That's that disconscious racism interfering. And so, in conclusion, what I'd like to say, I'm not your Indian mascot anymore, and I thank you, and I'll sing you a song that comes from the American Indian movement. <laughs> Thank you for spending your time with Messages at the Drum. It's been an honor to be here with you. See you next time. Meet you at the drum.